morning. It's good to be with you this morning. And let's let's pray as we begin and spend some time in the Word. Father, thank you for the opportunity, really the privilege, to study your Word. Thank you that you teach us and you guide us and your Word is faithful and true. So this morning, Father, would you be our teacher, be our guide, that we might learn more about who you are and how you have put this book together that is yours, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we will begin in the pastoral epistles. So uh, if you do not have a copy of the notes, I can have a few here. Then you can start passing them back. Thank you. And we, I'm not sure if you have notes. You do? Okay. You have your notes. All right. You get the gold star for the day. All right. He knows the writings on the wall. 
His hand is needed. And he has a couple of young men that he has been mentoring in, in ministry that are taking over church ministries. And so these are his pastoral letters to these young men. Timothy and Titus. How to run the church, how to shepherd the people of God. Um, and his desire is to pass on the faith that he has received. And so they're very personal letters. Um, they, uh, we, we learn about Paul's affection for these young men. We learn about some of the struggles that he has gone through. He does mention in other letters. But you can imagine this one is the, the senior saint. Spending time with some junior saints and saying, Okay, now listen, man. This is what you're going to encounter. This is how you're to lead. This is what the church is about. And very practical guidance on how to be spiritual shepherds of the church. So there's a lot of very hands-on, as it were, ministry that he shares. Um, having said all that, we don't turn these letters into just manuals of church government. I know they have principles for church government, but they're general enough to where they can be, in their application, be adapted from one place to another. He does establish a couple of offices in the church. He does establish general principles of uh, what should be happening in church. But it's not so rigid that it cannot be adapted and applied and implemented in a little bit different way depending on the cultural situation. So he's not going to make any judgments about music style, for example. He's not going to make any uh, uh, statements about dress. He's not going to make any statements about um, order of worship. But he's going to give some principles about character, about content, and about some of the offices that are in the church. Um, if we say that last words are lasting words, which we sometimes say, it's not always true, but certainly when we get to the Bible writers, uh, like Paul, and when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, we pay attention to the last words that they utter. And so we have here the last words of Paul, especially as we get to 2 Timothy. Um, we leave off in the book of Acts because we're trying to time, put together the timing of all these things. In the book of Acts, Paul is in prison in Rome. And all it tells us is that he was preaching the word of God and he was receiving visitors. So, the question then becomes, Paul has told the church in Rome that I'm eager to come to you and I'm eager to get prayer support and financial support so I can continue on to Spain. He writes that at the end of his book. And so it's, been, it's a discussion that in church history, did Paul ever make it to Spain? Okay? Now he could, he doesn't tell us in the New Testament he made it to Spain. But we do a little deductive reasoning, a little bit like a, an inspector, um, and we see, well... It's at least plausible. Uh, when we compare the book of Acts, which kind of gives the overarching history of what was going on with the gospel over a period of many years, and Paul's three missionary journeys that are mentioned in the book of Acts, he mentions places in his other letters that we can't quite fit in. Where, where, where would this have happened on his three missionary journeys? Nothing in Acts would lead us to believe that they're included in there. Um, some examples are he talks about a visit to Ephesus and Macedonia when he writes 1 Timothy that can't be accounted for. What, what trip is he talking about? Uh, he talks about going to an island of Troas. He talks about going to other places. 
and even Nicopolis, which is not mentioned anywhere else. These are all First and Second Timothy. Just we'll look at them later. So it's possible that, as he's talking about visiting these places, that there was another trip, as it were, his fourth missionary journey, that he went to Spain. And as we try to piece it together, he went to Spain for a season and then came back to Rome, whereupon he was arrested and martyred. He was released from prison in about 62 AD. He was put to death around 65, somewhere between 65 and 67 AD. What did he do in those three years? And so we surmise. That's all we can do. We surmise. There are no doctrines at stake here. There's nothing really worth causing any dissension over. Um, but it just is curious. You know, we want to know more about this book. We want to know more about how God worked through these men. Okay? Um, I don't have a strong opinion on it. I think there's some clues there that would lead us to think that he did go to Spain. I've even seen some um, scholars propose a, a possible route that he took. We just know that he said, I, went, I wanted to go far west, which was Spain. And we don't have confirmation that he did or did not go there. Yes? Uh, is there any remnants or any uh, word from Spanish people? I mean, from Spain itself? The church, because the church is big there, so do they... That's a good question. I, don't, I actually I don't have an answer to might have a... I just know that there have, it has been an assumption of church history that he did. Yeah. And so my guess is, you know what, next time we have the... Uh, through here. So he said there's the last epistles that Paul wrote. He, he knows that the end is near. And so he's writing to these young men. So let's, let's open to 1 Timothy itself. You know, we, one thing, you know, the, the, we, we think we have questions that we're going to ask once we get to see the Lord. And it's good for us to ponder and think about. But I kind of have a suspicion that when we behold His face, <laughs> our question, we won't have any questions at all. It'll just be like, it's you. And I'm here. And it's just, it's just going to be joy forever. I don't think, I mean, it's not that we won't learn, because I think we will. I think we'll continually grow and understand and explore creation. And this time, without sin, this time without hindrance, this time without any interpersonal muck. Do you think all that will be erased from our memory, what Earth is like? I don't know. I don't think so. Because we'll know each other. We'll recognize each other. But everything will be refined now, fully sanctified. We'll see clearly. No tarnish, no stain, no interruption, no corruption. Yes? But what about like the things that bring you sadness? There are no more death, 
or mourning or crying or pain, he will wipe every tear from your eyes. So what I think, and it's an awesome question, so we might ask it this way. How can I rejoice in heaven if I have relatives in heaven? Right? And we'll ask that question because we all think it. We all have relatives that perish without faith. And my answer to that is I think we will be so enamored with the glory of Christ that we will truly see how things are in the fullness of light and there will be no questions. We'll just know that God does all things well. And we won't even think about the impenitent because we're just going to be enjoying the lavish riches of God's presence. So that's why here we urgently plead with people to come to Christ. Our loved ones, our neighbors, you know, we're going to be sending out a young lady in a few weeks to go to the mission field. We want the gospel to get to the four corners of the earth, okay? And we're serious about it. But when we see Christ, I think we'll be so overwhelmed that we are in His presence. <laughs> we just, uh, I, was, I take that from a professor that I had the privilege of studying under for a summer course. And he said, when I get to heaven, there'll be three things that amaze me. Those that are there, those that are not there, and that aren't there. And that'll be good enough to keep us praising the Lord forever and ever and ever. But here below, man, we pray like crazy. I prayed for over 35 years for my father's salvation. And he came to Christ towards the end of his life. So we don't give up on people. But ultimately, we just trust the Lord to do the work. Okay? Good question. Um, but let's get back to 1 Timothy. He met him on his first missionary journey. And we, we can turn to Acts 16 where we can begin to see how Paul and Timothy uh, started to get together and learn something about the background of Timothy. And so we're in chapter 16, and let's just read the first few verses. Well, there's a nice reading voice. I can just read the first five verses of Acts 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. We have a good example of this, this young man here. I mean, how wonderful. We have testimonies in the Word of God about those who did well and those who did not do well. And what a joy it would be in the annals of heaven to have our name spoken well of, like Timothy. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Leicester and Iconium. Now my name isn't going to show up in the Word of God. Neither is yours. But in the annals of eternity, well, we like to have a good testimony for the Lord. Okay? By contrast, Paul talks about Alexander the coppersmith who has caused me great harm. <laughs> How would you like to be the guy who's mentioned as being the troublemaker to the Apostle Paul? Okay, so it does matter how we live because people observe. But in this case, Timothy, raised uh, with a believing mother, 
and has a good spiritual heritage. We learn in 2 Timothy that his mother and grandmother were believers. Okay, so there's a heritage there. And we might have a conversation we want to have with his mother. Say, were you raised in a godly home? Why did you marry that guy? Okay, but that's not... Way past that. Now we just see that Paul that, that Paul says that Timothy has a good spiritual heritage. And he invites then Timothy to join him. Because he had been a Greek, he would not have gone through the Jewish rituals for uh, being welcomed into the Jewish community, including circumcision, which was a symbol that you were putting yourself under the submission of the law. So for purposes of missionary activity and service, Timothy is circumcised so that they can go among the Jewish people and preach the gospel without that being a hindrance. Because they would know, hey, your dad is Greek, you're unclean, we're not going to take a message from you that's unclean. So they take care of that situation to symbolically say he is clean, and they can preach the gospel. Okay? Historical thing then, not something that necessarily needs to be worried about now. That was the historical context. Um, Paul refers to Timothy as my son. Several times. But it's not clear. In fact, it seems that Paul was not the one that actually led him to faith. So it was not his spiritual father in the sense that he introduced the gospel to him. In fact, we know that his mother and grandmother did. But he has such affection for him as a young man in the faith that oftentimes he refers to him as my son. And again, we see Paul's pastoral heart. And those will show up as we look at First and Second Timothy. Okay, we're just trying to get a little bit of historical background. Um... But Paul had planted churches. Let's see what the next slide brings up for us here. I'm not going to worry about that right now. Paul had planted churches, and Timothy had gone with him on the second and third missionary journey. So Paul and Timothy were partners on the second and third missionary journeys with Paul. And, and Timothy, with his background, would have been a great man to have because they were speaking to both Jewish and Greek communities. And so Timothy would be a strategic man to have there because he came from both worlds. And so there's a certain missionary strategy that goes on there. In any case, Timothy has shown himself to be faithful. He's shown himself to be a good worker. And so Paul sends Timothy to check on churches. 1 Thessalonians 3, he said, I sent Timothy. 1 Corinthians 4, I sent Timothy. 1 Corinthians 16, I sent Timothy. And there's different places where he said, I sent Timothy because I found him to be a faithful servant. What a delight. What a delight when you have a, a young Christian embracing the faith, growing into the faith, and now he's reached a level where you can confidently say, go and check out the churches, be a representative. And it is to Timothy that Paul will say, do not let others look down upon you simply because you're young. But show an example for all the believers. Okay? And Paul has seen in Timothy that he is an example to believers where he's been entrusted with great ministry responsibility. There is not necessarily a direct relationship between age and wisdom. Unfortunately, we wish it were the case. Often it is. Not always. Nor is there a direct relationship between youth and uselessness. We see examples in the New Testament itself of young believers being used in the Lord to accomplish great things. That the purpose is all of us being faithful to the station of life that we find ourselves in when God calls us. That's what we told the church in the morning. 
wherever you were when God called you and you were saved, walk faithfully in that and then continue to grow from that point. Timothy was such a man. So, that kind of gets us ready for the background as he is writing to Timothy two letters, how to be a good pastor of a church, how to shepherd the people of God well, a final charge of Tim Paul as he pours out his heart to this young man. Now, what's interesting is in the history of discussion on biblical studies is how often so-called scholars want to call into doubt that the Bible knows what it's talking about. So oftentimes we want to say, well, we know this couldn't have been the Apostle Paul that wrote it because of this in history or that, because of my language and this or that. As, as the church in Europe emerged, as it were, out of the Enlightenment, or we might say as the Enlightenment emerged out of Europe, human beings gave themselves more credit for understanding things and discovering the truth than probably they had a right to do. And so the whole thing of the Enlightenment was to question everything and add fontis, get back to the foundations. So even the scriptures were subject to scrutiny. Now during the Reformation, that was a beautiful thing. Great spiritual revolution that came as people went back to the scriptures. But then a generation or two later, as the Enlightenment began to take over, now it's like, well, we're so esteemed, we're so studied, we're so advanced. We don't need that superstition. We don't need those myths. And now we can sit in judgment. And so there are people that write entire books about how Paul cannot be the, the author of First and Second Timothy. I kind of think some people should just get a life. Because the evidence is there. It has been for 2,000 years. And what's the point? Well, part of the point is, Paul says some things about sexual morality. About the relationship between men and women. About women in the church that some people don't like. And so they decide, well, Paul must not have written it. And they're kind of clever there. You know, trying to hold somewhere a semblance of human dignity. Well, we'll just skip over it and say we don't believe it. Because the arguments are strong. He wrote these letters as he is nearing the end of his life. And so probably this is the one that he wrote in 64 AD with the other one following a couple of years later, shortly before he died. Um, and what would you write? You're an experienced Christian leader. You've got a young mentor who has shown himself or herself to be faithful. So you're a woman writing to a younger woman or a man writing to a younger man. Just hypothesizing. What would you include? What would you write? What would be those lasting things that you would record so that this young person would have a foundation for faithfully going forward? And that's what Paul is doing. He's writing to Timothy the things that he really wants Timothy to know, to understand, to be involved in. Um, before he, Paul, passes off the pages of history. Okay? I'm not sure you all have that. No, so. Okay? So, um, the church historian Eusebius said that Paul was martyred in 67 AD. I'm thinking he wrote this first letter about 64 AD and the second one sometime before he got. Because he says, I know that the end is near. Okay? 
The reason why I keep emphasizing this week by week is we believe God is a God of history, and He is He is control of history, and He acts in space and time, and so we should look for ways that He is interacting. It's not mythology that just happened, you know, where someone came out of the head of Zeus. Okay? No, we have things that are based in history, and we can look at events, and I have to have no fear about where history is going because it's in His hands. Okay. Right from Macedonia, area somewhere in Greece during this time. Um, he just says he's right from Macedonia, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. He doesn't specify what specific city. It might be that he's itinerant at this point. He's just going from city to city. Um, we won't worry about so much about the structure. Although you can see some of the main things he wants to address. He's writing a young believer who's going to lead the church. What would you talk about? Well, you would talk about worship. You would talk about discipline. You would talk about church offices. And then you would give some final charges. So I kind of lumped it together that way. You may have a little different outline. That's certainly fine. But what are some of the overall things that he writes about? And this is probably why some people attack Paul. He is writing so that we know how to conduct ourselves in the church. Um, I was trying to find the verse that just escaped me. But, um, it'll come back to me. How, how they are to conduct themselves in the church. This is chapter 3. Okay, yeah. Chapter 3, verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Okay? So this is how we're to conduct themselves. And he has this extended section in chapter 2 about instructions for men and women in the church. Now, if we think about the cultural context of Greek and Roman religions, with all of the immorality that was going on, with all of the gender, gender confusion is not a new thing. The early church encountered gender confusion, encountered men that wanted to dress like women, women that wanted to dress like men, all kind of sick practices. Okay, including homosexuality in the temples and, and even other things in the church. And so Paul's saying, look, God has established an order of creation that he said is good. First day did this, second day, third day, fourth day. We get to the sixth day and God says, something's not good. It is not good that man be alone. Therefore, I will make a help me for him. And in God's plan, and His wisdom, and His good design, and His kindness, creates men and expects them to act according to the order that He has created. And every time we get away from that, it leads to trouble. Well, it did certainly in the Roman world. Paul has to deal with some of that. What are some of the issues that are going on? So he says, look, uh, chapter 2, he talks about the necessity of praying for people. Uh, he talks about who Christ is, that he has given himself as a ransom. And then, starting in verse 8, he's saying, okay, now in the church. Here's how the men should behave. Here's how the women should behave. Um, and we'll go on and say, what is the office of elder? What is the office of deacon? Who is eligible to be in those positions? Upholding God's high standards 
for proper biblical manhood, proper biblical womanhood, proper biblical marriage, and how they're to be conducted in the church. And he always ties it back to creation. He doesn't tie it back to culture. He doesn't tie it back to tradition. He ties it back to culture. That something is rooted in creation itself. What did I just say? Culture. You meant creation. I meant creation. He ties it back to creation. Okay? That, that should be an indicator then that creation trumps culture. Okay? Like foundational creational principles take precedence over anything that we come up with in our Johnny Come Lately world. Okay? That was hard for the Romans to do. It's hard for us to do. Because we think we can come up with a better way. We think we're smarter. We think we're wiser. We think we can outfox God. God already knows the chessboard. He already knows all the pieces. He knows all the moves. And we're already in checkmate whether we realize it or not. <laughs> okay? To change the metaphor, he holds all the cards. Okay? So we have to decide do we go with him or do we go against him? And that was what he's instructing in the church. So, he says that he wants men in every place to lift holy hands without anger or quarrel. Is this talking about some type of charismatic prayer posture? It has more to do with just the fact that it is the position of his heart and the character of his behavior that he is serving with holy hands. He is, as he has had hands laid on him, perhaps as a deacon or as an elder, he is also able to use those hands in a holy conduct because he's been set apart. Okay? Now, you see me lift my hands in worship because I just feel the freedom to do that. I don't think that's what Paul's referring to here. I think he's talking about the character of the people in question. Okay? That they're not given to quarreling. They're not given to anger. They're not given to dissension or division. Likewise, then, the women... Adorn themselves in respectable apparel, modesty, self-control, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. A lot of this is cultural that would have indicated certain things in that culture about status, standing, importance, role, whatever. What he's saying is act in a way that is seen as dignified, modest, respectful of the cultural context in which you live. And that will look different in every cultural context. Um, it will look very different in the West African culture where Carol and I spent six years. It will look very different in the Arab culture where we spent 16 years. It might look different in Minneapolis than it would look in Northern California. Okay? But it's the idea that in tune with creation, we act in a way that is responsible and meaningful as men and as women. Okay? Um, there's more that could be said here. But they were dealing with some cultural issues where they had stepped beyond the bounds. And Paul says, look, don't go beyond God's way. Within God's way, there's flourishing. Within God's way, there's human fruitfulness and there's faithfulness. You go beyond God's ways, it, there, there, there's no end to it, how far off it will go. That's hard for us to hear today. Because we are autonomous. We, we want to be free. We want to do whatever, right? So Paul says no. Then he goes on to chapter 3, he gives the qualifications for elders and deacons, the two offices that are established in the New Testament church. They have different roles, they have different responsibilities, they are important. We don't have a hierarchical system, we just have a, a way of, of orchestrating and organizing so that there is a chain of command. 
But it, it's not a deep chain of command. It's a spread out chain of command because we believe in the priesthood of all believers. That all believers have a ministry, spiritual gifts, roles to play, ministries that they can be part of. And there is leadership and oversight for all of that. But even the leaders and the overseers are also being actively involved in ministry. Not with a big, you know, big hat sitting on a throne somewhere, waving the scepter around to people. That's not the, the role that Jesus showed. He came and rolled up his sleeves and came and lived among us, okay? Um, now, he's, he has special attention for the widows, the elders, slaves. And like surprises, he's got special instructions there that there is uh, importance in how we take care of one another, especially from those that perhaps the culture looks at and says, this is no, if we're in Christ, we need to take care of whatever their lots in life. And how we do that can be a challenge. Okay? So let me stop at that point. That was a lot thread in a short period of time. Let's just practically as we look at some of these things. How can we learn from them today? What can we be applying today? <clears throat> what would it look the, like? The yes. advice often just really feels contemporary of what we ought to be teaching. Doesn't it? Yeah. It feels like he picked up the newspaper this morning <laughs> and read what our issues are, right? He wasn't ashamed to say these things that were countercultural. Yes, and he was very countercultural when he said them. And we will be seen as countercultural if we say them today. Okay? So that should encourage us then to stand firm because for 2,000 years the church has done that. So it's not like this is a, just a new or novel thing. What else? Yeah. I appreciate that he talks about the women dressing modestly. Okay. Because of going back to creation, right? The roles of creation and and the way we are created as men and women, we should defer and respect and help one another growing in sanctification. Okay? Part of that is how we dress and how we behave and how we interact. That we can encourage men and women in sanctification by how we interact with one another. That is going to be cultural according to the situation, but the principle is, is right on. That all the things, if we keep in mind that all the things that seem like roles or seem like things we're supposed to do, they're all intended to point to Christ. Yeah. Um, and so that's why it can be adapted to culture, because as long as that's the goal, then you're going to make then it's, you're going to make the right choice and you're going to, you know. Yeah. Because it's Christ, pointing to Christ and pointing people to Christ and glorifying God. Or and it's actually for your well-being, isn't it? Yeah. The, the, the human flourishing that comes with just going along with God's way. Uh, um, one of my professors from seminary, Bob Yarbrough, he, he talks about the specific issue It has to do with Elders being men only. Pastors being men only. And how hard that would have been in that context and how hard it is in our context. Um, he says this. 
we should be slow to conclude that New Testament directives are outmoded because they are out of step with modern times. Sometimes, he says, it is modern times that need to get in step with Scripture. And so, I appreciate that. That we need to have that loving prophetic voice that says, well, you need to toe the line because this is how the line was drawn. <laughs> and when you do that, then you will experience really what you want as a human being. You want to experience freedom. You want to experience fullness and flourishing. And what made the best way to do that than according to God's ways? Because He's not a killjoy. He has he come. He has sent His Spirit. He has given us His Word so that we would flourish and become more like Christ. The devil throws lies at us all over the place about everything, thinking, nah, the church, ha, who needs it? Let me do what I want. But people that do what they want don't end up where they would like to be. Okay? And so, it's good for us to do it God's way. Yes? So there's women that are in godly lives, involved in godly ministry, that believe and do pastor. So I have chosen not to argue with them. I've said, what does it say in the Bible about that? But how do we deal or do we not have to deal with women that feel like it's okay for them to be a pastor? So let me open up that question. That's something that we're all dealing with. So what are some of the guidelines that we need to bring to bear in this? In terms of like the guidelines for deacons, and, I mean, because sure, in light of First Timothy, yes. and in light of application in contemporary culture, with very real things we're dealing with, what do we do? Well, it talks about how women should be submissive to men. It talks about women not speaking in church. I just think it's uh, uh, just I think this culture <coughs> overboard with women's freedom. And uh, uh, not making it clear, but I, no, just, I just feel like the woman. I always felt like I had an umbrella of protection over me because of my husband, even though he was not a believer. Okay. And I just feel like women are more emotional. Men are more non-emotional. I just think I just think it's not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't there a verse somewhere in the Bible that says women should not be heard in church? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 14. Yeah. We would have to look at that in context what it means there, right? And in, in light of what we're talking about here. Okay? Because Paul also says that some women in that very context prophesy. So we need to understand what the context is and what that means and how it's applied. But the, the general application is exercising spiritual authority in the church is given to those God-ordained men that he has set aside. And that fits in all of those contexts. So, but what do we do with someone when I was going to seminary back in the 1990s and there was an outspoken gal on campus that was pushing for the full rights of women to be pastors, elders, bishops, whatever they were, and she says this, well, women can preach just as well as men can. They can teach just as well as men can. And why are you making the church weak by denying them their spiritual gifts? 
That was, she made that argument plain and open. Yeah. Well, I'm like, first of all, there's plenty of us to do, plenty for women to do, to teach younger women. Yes. And we haven't taken up that mantle enough. Yeah. And I'm speaking myself, right? Yeah. So there, there's still plenty to be done. Um, and if we, there's a context in which those gifts can be shared. Yes. And uh, I, I think, you know, it's pretty clear, especially in... Uh, you know Genesis when it talks about you know working and the men will the women will want to be in the leadership role when you know we often want to do that we want to take charge and I think it it bodes well when we allow men to to step in and do those things and you don't when you see churches that are all almost all women and there's hardly under any men in a church. It, you realize quickly is very unbalanced, yes. and men are are not stepping in to take the leadership role. And so, what does a conversation? What does a conversation look like if you have a friend, or you walking down the street, and they say, "Hey, I'm Sally so and so, and I'm the pastor of this church." Yes. What is the conversation? How do you respond? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I have long time friends that are pastors, sole pastors of churches that are female. Yeah. I have long time friends that I love that are elders of church. Of church. Right. And I, I know how I feel. Children's ministry or children, uh, women's ministry? No, they're pastors of churches. Yeah, like head pastors, lead elders. I know how I deal with it, but I want to hear what other people so we have to, so first of all we ground ourselves in what we think the scripture is saying. That's that's our baseline where we start, right? So we start with that. Um, but again, we would we would want to deal with that question more or less pastorally, right? Um, you're trying to win the person, not win the argument. Now you have to, in a sense, win the argument eventually because you want everyone. Paul says, I want everyone to come to maturity in Christ. To come to maturity in Christ means we are subservient and submissive to everything that he has taught. And so that means that eventually we want everyone to get to that point. But there might not be just one way of getting there. So it might not be when you get in that situation and, you know, boom, it's over. You know, okay, metaphorically. No, that's not probably going to help to win the person, right? If our goal is to work moving towards Christ. And you can't compromise, right? So, um, when I was going through my overseas training in Bakersfield, California, we were serving an African American church. We were spread out. The church that I was in had a male pastor. The church that one of the other people involved in had a female pastor. And her attitude was, well, if if, if you have men that don't think women should preach, send them to me. Issue that has to be dealt with first, yeah. right? And so, what is the actual issue? What is the actual problem? You know, is it is it misinformation? Is it is it sin? Is it pride? Is it a combination thereof? And and that's where relationships get messy. But um, we know that ultimately, what is good for people is to do it God's way. At the same time, we're not God the Holy Spirit. So we can't always affect life change in the speed or in the ways that we want. It might also be that I'm not called to win every or fight every battle in every situation. 
Yeah. It might be that I'm called to avoid one or just move on faithfully what I'm going to do because maybe I'm not the person that's going to be used of God to convince that person. Holy Spirit. There has to be the humility that maybe I'm not the answer in every situation. Um, but we stand firm. And you know what? It's going to embarrass us. It's going to cost us. Why aren't you more progressive? Why aren't you more advanced? Why don't you get with the times? Why don't you... And if we're convinced this is God's way, we stand firm on it. And we don't always have to answer everything. I'm yeah. convinced that it points out that they really don't believe that God, that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. When they, This is one issue. I'm thinking there's going to be other issues. They're not, they, if they can't rely on God's word, this is what it says, they can justify the way that they're not believing. That's right. And it needs to be pointed out. So we teach faithfully what we believe. We live out faithfully what we believe. We promote what we believe. Um, but I need to build a relationship so that I can help them have a better understanding. You know, kind of a Ananias and Sapphira coming along with Silas and helping them understand a better way, a deeper way. Um, and just so you guys know, I always, I, I don't have a question about how I've dealt with it because I always point them to the truth and I'm not sure. afraid to stand up and point them to the word. Sure. So, and, and like you said, it's just you, you take every situation and you always you always show God's love and you always show God's truth. So. Yeah, and that you are submitted to the word of God. That you are and, and modeling it. Yeah. I am in total agreement with where you are. Yeah. But I do believe that God can speak and the word of God can go the result God can still use the result. Yes. Whoever the messenger is. Sure. Yeah, that's where it speaks better. Than it's different if I got five minutes in a grocery store or someone that I've met and say, "Oh, I'm Pastor Lynette at uh, whatever church." It's like, okay, it's wrong time. It's like, like certain right now, but that's probably not the most productive conversation. But I can't say, "Well, I'm Pastor such at the church." Hey, maybe we get together to talk about it sometime. Or maybe in the middle of the grocery store, it's not going to work. But maybe. There's another context. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm saying that people can still oh. find God through what's being said, sure. no matter yeah. young or old. Sure. So the question that, that, that I asked, and that several of us asked, when this, when she was a seminary student, she was taking all the classes, and she asked those questions, don't, why are you making this church so weak? I came back and said, I wonder why God didn't think of that before. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What's your and and she no response because she, the implication is she knows more than God and I was just pointing it out with a question and then uh, I never saw her change during that time but other people that were stepping into the conversation as well came up with several classes and everything you know but it's always bringing back to we're surrounded to the yeah. And also that uh, explained to her, it doesn't mean women can't teach. Yeah. It doesn't mean that women aren't as smart as or as spiritual. Maybe they're smarter. Maybe they'd be better at it. <laughs> but, but there's, you know, certain big difference between men and women. And uh, not a lot of men can so, so here's from a, from a you know, long-time missionary perspective. Right now we are approaching 8 billion people in the world. 
okay? The current statistics right now are 42%. So what's 42% of 8 billion? It's about 3 point, let's say 3.4. Have no gospel witness whatsoever, okay? If we break it down further, we just say, you know, men and boys, girls and uh, women and girls, okay? Out of the 3.4 billion or the 8 billion, let's just take the 25% of the men out. You still have 75% of the world, much of which doesn't have any gospel witness at all, much of which is crying out for women to mentor younger women, where a lot of trafficking and all kind of abuses going on. There are not limited options for women to be involved in this and to be faithful to the principles that God has laid out. They're even more than what we're doing now. Okay? So, it, you know, sometimes you have to bump heads and you have to say, no, thus saith the Lord, that's it, and walk away. Sometimes you need to help them come along, come alongside, help them see a better way, share the word of God, and let God work on them. Because I have seen a number of people that were in one camp, but after studying the word further, through the building of relationships, have come to what I call the complementarian view of Scripture, that men and women complement each other so that the, the body is edified. Okay? I think she was first and then you're second. Okay? And if those who hold to the truth stop buying those books and stop supporting them and listening yeah. to them, if they can't read if they don't have a following, yeah. and if we can't help them see the truth, we can encourage each other yeah. to not follow these people, and then who are they going to lead? Right. Right. So is it a sin for a woman to preach? Too many, yeah. To a gathered assembly of people where men are, yes. So why would God bless a sin of woman preaching and people responding? And that's what we're seeing. Aren't we glad that God works through all of us in our imperfections? Right. So we don't. So He works in sin. Works in sin. He works in spite of sin. He works through the gifting that He has given, so that His His word is going forward. But He can also withdraw and He can give blessing and. I'm not sure that we're all able to figure out the calculation, right? Um, well, is every time there's a public response of people coming forward saying a crusade, are they actually saved? I wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. And we wouldn't know. But when 10% of people that go forward in the Billy Graham crusade, in the history of the Billy Graham crusade, only 10% end up in church, could be called into question the validity of a number of those conversions. So what is fruit? What does fruit look like? It looks like people who become like Christ. So it might be that judgment doesn't rush ahead and say, well, I saw the whole crowd swayed by her teaching and say, well, God must be at work. It might be five years down the line when we see very few of those people walking with the Lord or maybe fall away from the faith or gone into sex or other things. We'll say, oh, this definitely wasn't the Lord. See what I'm saying? It's, it's more just the, the timeline of how God judges. Will God judge disobedience? Yes. Does God work in spite of disobedience? I'm sure glad He does. Because I don't obey Him perfectly. So. Now, what I stand... Oh, sorry, so. What's that? Well, you can't say that when 
I know we like to put value ones in, but yeah. you can't say that just because they're female. They, they don't get away with it just yeah. because they're female. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when I've been in, con I've been in conferences, mixed conferences, men and women, and a woman gets up to speak, guess where I am? In the bookstore. Okay? No, I'm, I'm consistent with my convictions. And well, I think that's what she should do when she comes to the her women preacher friends. She should not extend conversation. Go I, I, don't I don't participate in their church life. And I tell them, I say, well, that's not what I believe because of this is what the Bible says. Yeah. And that's that's what God's called me to do at so, I don't I don't hide from the truth. I don't right. support their ministry. And you don't <laughs> Yeah. And it's I'm sorry if that doesn't mean other people's No no, it's know. it's a tough issue. Yeah. Because we're all put in tough situations. And sometimes the solution we'd like it to be more obvious than it is. So in our church, clear. Right. What we're going to do in our church. When we're interacting with other churches, but well, still clear as far as who's going to be the preacher authority leader. Yeah, I don't trust authority from them. Yeah. Um, so, it, and then there's other times, like I said, I just walk away. I go do something else. Because I'm, I'm going to be consistent with who I am and what I think the word is saying. And I'm probably not going to be the one that's going to change a conference of 8,000 people, you know. While it's, while it's going on. But I can just get up and leave. And then when people ask, I say, well, here's why I leave. And um, that gave me, the one thing I'm thinking of, it gave me conversations with people whom I had trained in ministry. And they, especially the women, they were saying, oh, we're wondering if you're going to be consistent or not. And so they're actually expecting me to get up and leave. Now, because it was a woman speaking and they were women, they didn't have any trouble. They figured it was up to the men there to decide whether they were going to obey the word or not and stay or leave. They didn't have any trouble because it was a woman. And then when they saw me leave, it reinforced to them that's what I believe. And now they say, yeah, it's possible to live this out. Okay. So do I change my hairdresser? My hairdresser is the woman who's preaching. <laughs> I'm teasing you, Pastor. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. The one thing that I think of is that pastors and teachers are held to a higher authority. Yes. To God. So if they strongly believe, they're going to have to explain this to God. Yes. Of course. They go to heaven. My other question is, does EFCA of America have a stance on that? Yes. And it is? Men only as pastors and ordained ministers. Now, women can get a ministry license for things like university ministry, children's ministry, women's ministry, things like that. We do have a ministry license where they can get, uh, according to the laws of the land, kind of the same recognition as religious workers or missionaries or whatever, but uh, not have the title of senior pastor or pastor. Yeah. Just, just to go way off, in a lot of mission situations, they, they, my experience with Papua New Guinea, they set women because to be spokesmen and to be teachers because the men weren't afraid of them and they actually could spread the gospel. I think there are places, I think there are places that women, all kinds of places that women can work. That's different than becoming the pastor and taking authority. 
And then what, what's the end game? Because we had single women missionaries where it was in West Africa. And the end game was they were involved in planting churches. And after the churches got started, they started looking for the young men that they could train to become a pastor of those churches. Yeah. And then they turned over. And they were just kind of motherly counselors, you know, encouraging them. But they, they recognized that they had to start modeling right from the beginning what the biblical pattern would be. Uh, there's fuzziness even in the New Testament as the New Covenant is overtaking the Old and certain things are kind of in that transition period and then as Paul is writing his letters now it's like okay the gospel is here now these things are clear and these things are true okay so can a woman do evangelism? yes and I'm wondering this is an open question can a woman be an evangelist and calling men and women to repent? that's not technically a church Activity? I'm just asking the question. So, but whatever response there is needs to be moving towards a Bible teaching church where they will be sitting under the authority of the pastors and the elders. Um, but we pushed a hot button. Because Paul did. He had to deal with it in the first century. Yeah. Well, so let's do it like Paul said. Well, we are doing it. It's just we have to discuss how we get there, right? Because Paul had to discuss how we get there. And after, it was not the first message out of his mouth when he planted the church. Remember, this is a church. These are churches that have been established, and these are men that he's grooming to ministry. And he's training and equipping them. And it's part of that process. And he says, this is what you do. But it's not, it was, it was all part of a growing process. It was not neat and precise. <coughs> Maybe separated with, like we might like it to be. It was a dynamic, ongoing, growing situation. And without, I mean, Paul didn't compromise, but Paul worked with women in ministry. But he never sent them out. <clears throat> never sent them out. Never sent them out as mission. Although, you know, what do we do with Ananias and Sapphira? There was a couple that was ministering together. Yes. Can couples go out and minister together? I'd say yes, and absolutely they should. She's yes, that's right. That's right. So yes, we opened up our sense. And yes, it's good for us to be a little uncomfortable to challenge some of the grids that we phrase things in. And then it might be we go through it, we come right back to our word and say, yep, we passed through the fire, we're exactly right doctrinally, and we move on forward, we move on forward. But the discussion itself doesn't have to be harmful. And we're talking through all the principles and making sure it's clear in our mind what Paul wants us to know. Okay? Okay. So one man does another. Thank you for your word that sharpens us. Father, we need to be sharpened. We need our minds sanctified, our hearts purified, our hands empowered with truth that we will live and walk accordingly. Thank you for your grace that is lavish at each step along the way. As you gently teach and guide us, Father, we become more faithful to you individually, as families, and as this family of gathered believers here at Evangelical Free Church of Oregon. Father, we pray for to that end because we want to glorify you in all that we do. Dismiss us now with your peace.